we uh, welcome you, Martin. Okay. Uh, Martin has done great work on uh, a very critical issue, uh, which is the land law in Palestine, the colonial land policies, the, and the British mandate, uh, and has put uh, several books out. Uh, one of them is, is called Colonial Land Policies in Palestine um, in 2007. And he has done something also great for, uh, for Palestinian scholars and for uh, all scholars, which is putting an eight-volume series of, uh, from the Cambridge Archive editions uh, that include much of the basic sources uh, on uh, resources on uh, the land issue, especially during the mandate period. And, uh, and uh, some maps, are, uh, very important maps. So this is a, a, a great service to the uh, to the research community, uh, and we uh, uh, were were lucky to to purchase a copy for our library here, and uh, any scholars who are interested in this are welcome to to use it. Uh, okay, uh, Martin is here actually for the uh, Birzeit uh, archive conference uh, on archives. Uh, but we, we, we're, we're lucky to uh, have invited him and uh, we're thankful that he agreed to present his work uh, with us. And tomorrow he will also give a similar lecture in Birzeit, the uh, geography department. And, um, but it would be uh, more like a lecture. So here we are, uh, uh, I hope we all read the, uh, the paper and we, uh, we will discuss it with him. We'll give him 15 minutes to talk, <laughs> and then we will uh, debate. Yes. Uh, he, he wants debate. This, <laughs> this is the first time he presents to a Palestinian audience, yes. uh, and, and uh, he, he wants to feel, I think, the nuances and the sense of urgency and what is important, what's not important, what is... Uh, so, uh, and, you know, we're, we're lucky to have your perspective and to, to uh, engage in, in such a you know, debate. Please. Thank you, Munir. Thank you very much for the introduction, and thank you very much for coming. I, um, as, as Munir said, this is my uh, first presentation at a Palestinian Institute or university, and it's been far, far too long, so I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Um, as Munir said, this is work that contributed to uh, a book I published in 2007. So, I it's and that book was the publication of my PhD thesis, which I did in England, starting in the early 1990s. So this work is somewhat dated in terms of being uh, having worked on this starting this 20 years ago. In fact, I did my uh, some of my archival work 20 years ago today. I, in March, 20 years ago, I came to uh, and lived in the old city of Jerusalem when I was studying in the Israeli State Archives. So I thought what I would do in the 15 minutes, or 14 now, is give some personal background, why I came to study this question, and then a quick summary of what is in the paper, and then hopefully if there's time, to talk very quickly about what is not in the paper, um, in terms of uh, what I would view then as, as uh, future, future areas of discussion. I mean, the paper's long enough as it is, so I, I don't feel bad about not adding it. But. My, um, my background is, I, I'm Canadian from Western Canada. I was very interested in my undergraduate work in British colonialism in Africa. Uh, for some reason, I had instructors that fascinated me about the colonial state in Africa. I went to England to study the Middle East, 
And there I worked with someone called Roger Owen, who also was very interested in the colonial state in the Middle East. And then I chose Palestine as my case study. So that's really how I came to choose Palestine as a case study um, for my interest in colonial, in colonial administrations. The, and, and I was always very interested in land and property rights. So I was interested in land, property rights, I was interested in colonial states, and I was interested in studying Palestine. Now when I came to Palestine, there was a fairly large literature, but it was almost all, really all dominated by the question of Jewish land purchases during the 1920s and 30s. And my argument, the argument that I made at the time was that this was a, um, an act of reading history backwards. Basically, people looked at the creation of the State of Israel in 1948, and they were only interested in the mandate period for that which brought about the State of Israel in 1948 and ignored everything else. So a sort of backwards writing of history. And then I read an article actually by Ibrahim Abu Lokod in 1981 called The Perils of Palestinology, I think it was called. And he sort of said, beware, you know, or a caution against reading Zionism into everything during the mandate period. What about the other things that happened there that didn't contribute to 1948? And for that matter, I would make the argument that the creation of the State of Israel in 1948 was much more about the 10 years preceding it than it was about the 30 years preceding it. We don't need to get into that argument right now, but there's all sorts of things happening in the mandate period that didn't have to do with Zionism, and I was interested in trying to capture that. So the question then becomes, if land in Mandate Palestine isn't just about Zionism, what else is it about? And so I came up with this idea, actually I borrowed it from my supervisor, Frames of Reference. What are the different ways in which we can understand land rights in Palestine? And part of it is Zionism, but part of it too is British colonialism. And so I sort of tried to sort of think about the different frames of reference. So let me... Um, let me um, uh, uh, summarize briefly what's in the paper. I focus here on the Land Settlement Ordinance of 1928. This is a, for, for the question of land in Mandate Palestine, an extremely important piece of legislation, and yet very few people had really written about it. If this was a piece of legislation in any other colonial context, people would have been writing all about this question of the Land Settlement Ordinance and the various, and the various records that emerged from the Land Settlement Ordinance. So I'm using that as a sort of uh, case study to try to understand these frames of reference in Mandate Palestine. The idea of the Land Settlement Ordinance was it emerges from the idea prominent in most British colonial situations that uh, in terms of land, the optimal, the optimal relationship is between an individual who has secure title to a plot of land. So the idea of the ordinance is that these British officers would go into the, first they would sketch a map, a, a map of the area, and then using a sketch map of the area, you'd have a British official go in with legal powers to adjudicate claims to land, and then all of this would be written down on a register and in a map, so that there was a clear and official um, uh, authority in terms of who owned what. And that was the idea of the Land Settlement Ordinance. I provide more details in the paper and we can look at that. So what was this all about? So let me just briefly summarize. Was it about Zionism? Is this all driven by the Jewish national home? Some would argue yes. In fact, many argue yes. That the reason Britain was most interested in determining individual title to land, they would argue, people argued, was so that all the land would get onto the market where Jewish land purchasing agencies could purchase it. 
And they even argued that if you look at where the land settlement processes happened, they were all on the coast and the coastal lands where Jewish land purchasing was greatest. Okay, so to some extent that is obviously true. That there were obstacles to Jewish land purchases during, say, the Ottoman times. Britain got rid of all of those obstacles, right? And it's also true that um, the market did help um, Zionism in terms of being able to purchase land. And if you look at where that land was purchased in the coastal plains and valleys, the location is extremely important because that's where the state of Israel is created. Right? So that the state of Israel is created in land that doesn't include Judea and Samaria, as Netanyahu referred to the West Bank, right? Now all of a sudden it's very important, but it wasn't important back then. However, so there was, I'm not saying it was unimportant, but the key question is that only 6 or 7% of the land was ever purchased. That's a very small amount when you think that Israel was then created on 78% of what was Mandate Palestine. So when you think about the overall importance, title deeds or land, it pales in significance compared to you know, international recognition of the state of Israel in the UN in 1947, and then war and battles in terms of the creation of the state of Israel. Britain never took the kind of steps that Zionism wanted them to, which was about acquiring government control over land and then transferring it to Jewish land purchasing agencies, say the way Algeria, if French did in Algeria, or the British did in Canada, or in Australia. Right? It was always up to the Jewish land purchasing agencies to buy it themselves. In terms of the settlement operations, the reason why Britain did the coast is they wanted to be very comprehensive and coordinated about their approach. So if they could go out in a fan-like method, then they knew that they could settle one village and then the next, the neighboring one and the neighboring one. So they could be very comprehensive about the approach of settling title. They couldn't do that if somebody started here and somebody started there, because if they came, what happened if it didn't match up? Um, and uh, um, in terms of the other kind of two arguments I would make here about the importance of um, a land title is that the contrary argument could actually be made, and that is rather than security of title helping Zionism by putting land onto the market, Jewish land purchasing agencies actually benefited from ambiguity in title. You know, if you look at the two big ones, like the Sursak in the Marja Ben Amar, or the Tayan family in the Wadi Harareth, there are many, 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 many uh, cultivators of the land who did have rights to the land, but they were easily ignored because they did not, they could not prove their title. So they were sort of bundled up in these large deals. Um, another way to put that is if you think about the West Bank after 1967, and I'm drawing here on work by Raja Shahadeh, and that is that, in fact, one of the first things that Israel does in the West Bank after 1967 is they stop all settlement operations that had been continued by the Jordanian government. And there's even, there's even reported instances of land registrars and their offices being burnt, or, you know, from arson. Because those titles were, in, were the, the titles to land by Palestinians are, an, uh, are a problem for settlement efforts in the West Bank, arguably. Um, and then, of course, one other sort of consideration here is if you look at the, um, the work that's often done in Palestinian refugee camps, say in southern Lebanon, many families hold on to that title deed because it's one of their only sort of proofs of that land. 
So, so to balance that out in terms of the importance of these, this settlement process to Zionism, I think it's important to note that um, it wasn't intentionally done that way by the British, but that more to the point, it was also to some extent facilitated Palestinian claims of ownership. So that's something to weigh. In terms of uh, a colonial frame of reference, I think that's more useful than seeing it all as something to do with Zionism. When you look at the importance of somebody like Sir Ernest Dowston, so this is a British official who comes from India. He then comes to Palestine in the 1920s. He's pretty much the author of the 1928 Land Settlement Ordinance. He then goes on to Jordan, where he does the very same ordinance, and it's considered a huge success if you read, if we believe what people like Michael Fishbach has written. He then goes on to Iraq, interestingly enough, but by then the British don't want anything to do, sorry, the Iraqis don't want anything to do with the British. The 1930 treaty's been signed, so he's not very successful there. Um, in terms of the 1928 Land Settlement Ordinance, a lot of it is taken in terms of the way it's organized by, um, by uh, British ordinances in Tanganyika and uh, Malay, Ma the Malay uh, colonies. So they draw a lot on other colonial situations. Interestingly, he does not draw on British policies because Britain did not have anything like a settlement ordinance. In England, there was no cadastral survey. It was all done by British lawyers. It's after, after going from Egypt to Palestine to Iraq, then Dawson goes back to England and there he tries to encourage the, the, something like the Palestinian 1928 Land Settlement Ordinance. So it's kind of interesting to think of that in fact these, uh, these arrangements came first in Palestine and then later in the 1940s and 50s in Britain. Um, and I think the other, the, the other important caution to note in terms of thinking about Palestine as a colony is that it's difficult to know what a colony is. That colonial arrangements are often very less hegemonic and powerful than we sometimes think of them. That the British state was a lot weaker in many of these aspects than we sometimes think of it. In terms of making significant changes on the ground, they lacked arguably both the capacity just in terms of having officers on the ground, and for that matter, the will to change things. They were very, very dependent in every situation on traditions and uh, official structures on the ground. So for example, politically, they relied on the politics of the notables in places like Palestine and elsewhere. And in terms of land, they relied very heavily on, on the practices of the Ottoman state, or at least their understanding of the practices of the Ottoman state. And here we come to the third frame of reference. So in terms of understanding land policies in Palestine, yes, part, some of it had to do with the promises made to um, Zionism, the Balfour Declaration. A lot of it had to do with simply they, British officials came here and they did what they did in other colonial situations. They didn't think of it as any different, at least not in the 1920s. After the riots of 1929, things changed, but in the 1920s, it was sort of colonialism as usual. And then if we think of this third frame of reference, Ottoman rule, the question becomes, well, when we think of what colonialism as usual means, it often means a heavy reliance on the political and economic structures that happened there before. Now, when people have worked on Ottoman land laws, especially the big Ottoman land law of 1858, coming out of the Tanzimat reforms, and here I'm thinking particularly of the work of Martha Mundy and her husband, Richard Samaray Smith, you know, they take a look at these land laws in 1858 and the various changes to them right up until 1912, 
And what they see is very much what the British tried to do in 1928. Now, when the British do this in 1928, they want to take credit for it all. They think that, yes, secure title of individuals to the land, this is all part of progress and civilization. And, and, and Britain, Britain wants to lay claim to progress and civilization because that justifies colonial rule. But much of what they do was already in place by the Ottomans, at least in terms of a legal structure, at least in terms of a, a legal structure on the ground. That is, in 1858, and in terms of various um, adaptions right up until 1912, the Ottomans are trying to put into place an effort to secure individuals and their title to the land. And this is what Dowson even says. In the 1920s, he'll want to take full credit you know, for inventing this idea of private property. But by the 1930s, he's arguing, well, actually, Ottoman law was pretty good. And then at one point, even in the 1930s, he says, we would have done this whether or not the Balfour Declaration was even conceived. Um, Okay, so we can talk a little bit more about um, Ottoman law too, but this is what the, the, the argument of the paper is trying to be, is that to understand land policies, first it helps to be very specific, and so it helps to take a case study. So I'm looking at the 1928 land settlement ordinance. But if you look at a previous important piece of legislation, like 1920, 1921, what was called the Land Transfer Ordinance, and this was the ordinance that opened up the market in land after World War I, during World War I, the market was closed and they tried to close the registries because things were such a chaotic during the war. It was um, most of the pressure for the land transfer ordinance came from the, uh, the, the, the what we used to call, I'm not sure if we do anymore, but the, the, the Palestinian notables who were part of the, of the uh, advisory council of the first high commissioner. It wasn't Heim Weitzman in the Balfour Declaration. They didn't like the idea of the registers being open and the idea of title being consigned, assigned to Palestinian owners because they thought it would make it more difficult to acquire the land. Um, so, uh, uh, but there are other opportunities, and, and in the 1930s things are different again because Britain at that point is quite worried about a market and land because a market and land is dispossessing Palestinian peasants and Britain worries that dispossessed <coughs> Palestinian peasants go to the shanty towns of Haifa and start to rebel and they don't like that idea. There's always a tension between you know, progress and stability. But at least in terms of 1928 land settlement ordinance, I'd argue that much of the, the, the weight here has to be put on British ideas of, of what land title means. And in Palestine, they were helped a great deal by the fact that the Ottomans already had an economic and legislative apparatus in place. Okay, so what's not here? Um, uh, two suggestions, I would think, in terms of what really makes this paper incomplete. One is, uh, when you think of property rights, yes, part of it is the relationship of this between the state and the law, right? Part of it is how the state articulates a new law. But then you also have to think about that law being made into practice, so a piece of legislation coming. But then the most important part, really, is implementing that legislation on the ground. So what I think we, we really need to do is go and take a look at the moment of settlement. And these records do exist, Martha Mundy's seen them at least in the, in, in the land records of Amman, that these settlement officers, when they go into the land at the moment of settlement and they record these claims from the Palestinian landholders, they're all written down in the diaries and notebooks of the Palestinian settlement officers. 
And that, I think, is really the most important moment or articulation of property. Because that's when this law comes into conflict or dialogue or relations with lived realities on the ground. I'll just draw attention to the one quote I have from Martha Mundy, where she talks about the settlement process as the point where the state shatters the idea of ownership into pieces. And it's then drawn on maps and struck in steel on the ground, as the villagers put it. And the, 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 the networks, the social networks of ownership are shattered. So what she's getting at here is that when you think of a lived reality of property, it doesn't have to do with an individual in the land. It has to do with the relationships of one individual to another uh, individual. They're very social relationships, property rights. And the lived reality would be, well, you own, you don't really own the land. You own, maybe you don't have some rights to the harvest. So you wouldn't, you'd, and, and your understanding of that might be, well, from, from so-and-so's land to the wadi, or from the road to, to it could be from, well, however much, however much grain could be, could be grown given the rainfall of that year. But it's all contingent on social and geographic relations. Whereas the state comes along and they throw a rectangle on top of that, right? And invent these new straight lines that then can't change. So the, the adaptation of the people to these new realities is, uh, I think, a, a, a very rich one for, um, for future, uh, for future um, uh, research. I'll give you one more example. If you look at some of the measurements that people use, like a fadan, right, or a dunam. But a fadan, it had, uh, before the mandate period, several different meanings depending upon the geography of Palestine. It was, it could be defined, or jiftlik is another term, as the amount of land two oxen could, could plow, right? But now it means, you know, 1.002 square meters, or sorry, uh, 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 1,000 square meters. Right? And it becomes centralized across the whole. Or uh, Mawat, the land that um, lies from a village as far as the voice can travel. All of these lived ideas are now measured. Sorry, I don't think that Mawat, are you sure? Or uh, Mawat? That is Mawat. That it lies beyond, the, the idea is that you define the land of Mawat, but that's as, uh, how is it? It's, it's far away from... Um, or 30 minutes walk, right? Well, or 30 minutes walk. The original definition is here. It's, but it's a lived one. If you go to the edge of the village and you scream as loud yes. as you can, yeah. exactly when you cannot hear it, exactly. that's where it starts Mawat. Mawat. Not, but now, under the British, they want it all centralized. Yeah, and they, yes, it does. Yeah. Miri, I think it's not Mawat. Mawat is a land not cultivated for many years. Yes. And that's why it's Mawat. It's not cultivated. Mm -hmm. While Miri is where you stand on outside the, edge of the village. Sorry. And if you can reach that, then it's the, the government land, which is Miri. I mean, we have to check that. We have to check that. You are the Good. I mean, Good. No, let's check that. But the, other, the point I was really trying to make is how now we have standardized ideas of, of um, weights and measurements that before were changed, you know, throughout the... Um, and then the second uh, uh, sort of direction that I think studies need to go, or that perhaps I should have done more on, if, if so if one is sort of micro, that moment in a village between the settlement officer and the landholders, and I think that's also where maybe power in the community can also come in, that a more powerful landholder might be able to take advantage of weak ones, 
right, in terms of acquiring more land. That's my experience in terms of looking at the cadastral survey in Egypt, for example. Um, which also provides, that's where Dawson really wants to bring the, his experiences from Egypt into Palestine. Is if, we, if one's micro, the other direction I think needs to be much grander and, and look at these, world, these narratives of history from a global and world perspective. Because this is happening everywhere. Where you have, um, let's call it, I, I'm not happy with the term, but many are, modernity. And modernity brings with it the growth of the state and growth of state structures. And this is happening in, in France and Britain. And the very same changes are happening in, France, in Britain. For example, the enclosures and centralization. Um, and the growth of the state and the growth of bureaucracy and the growth of governance. It's happening everywhere at the same time as it's happening in Palestine under Ottoman and British rule. Um, and the other thing that's happening everywhere is the growth of the market. Uh, as, as Palestine becomes incorporated into global networks of trade under in the 19th and 20th century. And if we think about those two big changes in terms of the growth of the state and the growth of the market, what happens is that property rights becomes defined very, very narrowly. That the only rights that seem to be pertinent throughout most of the 20th century are either state rights and state regulation or private rights and private property. And what gets, what gets erased from that, marginalized from that, again, throughout the world, are any idea of collective rights, community rights, right? I mean, uh, and, and in, in Palestine, of course, uh, you've got uh, wonderful examples of community rights to land through the whole Musha system. But you have other ideas of communal rights to land, whether it be uh, communal fisheries in Iceland or uh, herding practices in northern Canada. Um, and throughout the 20th century, people all think that communal rights, and, and I'm talking for far too long here, but I'll wrap it no, up no, now, is, um, is uh, that, that they want to do away with what they call the commons and the tragedy of the commons, which was a phrase made famous in the 1960s by an article by Garrett Hardin. And instead of the commons, you want either state control or private control. And I think that's another interesting process to, to put Palestine into a more comparative pro perspective. So I'll come back to the beginning. And that is when I first started looking at Palestine, and my supervisor had a real influence on me in this regard, is that people always thought Palestine was somehow unique, sui generis, subject to its own laws. And the reason for that was people came and said, oh, Zionism, we have to look at Zionism here. Right? And what I thought, when we, and certainly when I went to the archives in the 1920s, the British weren't doing that. The British came here and they wanted to do what they had done elsewhere. And they were drawing on India and they were drawing on Egypt and other colonial situations. And then when you look at some of these changes, Zionism, I'm not trying to suggest that, that, um, that Zionism was unimportant. If you think of, obviously, in terms of immigration, right, British Zionism, extremely important in British policy. If you look at constitutional issues, right, extremely important in British policy. Palestine, the one state that never gets a constitution. The one, the one colonial state that doesn't get a legislative assembly, and one of the very, very few colonial states that doesn't survive intact. Right? That's, that's very unusual. I mean, there are some examples. India comes to mind. But other, I mean, you look at uh, colonial... Ireland. Uh, uh, Cyprus. Yep, they exist. But you look at um, Africa and large parts of Asia, all with these very artificial contrived boundaries 
It's, 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 it sort of requires some explanation. But I think immigration and constitutional issues are the big ones. That, um, and, and, and that, that land, I, I would argue, um, uh, Zionism, okay, this is counterfactual, I shouldn't say this, but, uh, or we, don't, we can't prove it, but um, uh, Zionism might have purchased half the amount of land, let's say 4 or 5%. And keep in mind that 2% or so was already purchased under Ottoman law. Maybe even three if you include the Sursak deal, because that was begun sure. under the Ottoman law. So, not to suggest that it's unimportant, but to try to kind of suggest that, there, that, that Mandate in Palestine deserves to be, you know, understood forwards, not just written backwards, mm -hmm. and to recapture some of what it all meant. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. We don't do this in small circles. But for you, Martin, that's And you're right, according to Rajesh Hadi, it's the uh, Article 100 three in the land code that defines Muwat as the with the human voice that can't be heard at the nearest inhabited places called dead or Muwat, yet the same article continues that anyone who needs that land yes. can cultivate it on the condition that the Raqqaba still belongs to the Sultan, which is yeah. the case ah, with the Mir. Yeah. But, but, but this is, this is one, one way of defining it unless there is a Miri record. So, yes. I mean, I think this is, yes. these, these items are not... Uh, and, 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 and very importantly, the land code, the Ottoman land code, isn't necessarily something for define isn't something for lawyers to define. It's an, an administrative. Yes. Yes. So it's, it's a little bit different than that's something, something that. Uh, yeah. So people can can forge agreements in the court yes. around these meanings yeah. through dialogue. It's a different it's a dialogue. different yeah. legal structure from the uh, type. It is. Right. I. It is. Yeah. The, I, I think there are many uh, many points. Let's open uh, uh, for discussion. I have some questions, but I can delay them and uh, allow others to uh, to you know, initiate if someone has an urgent or less urgent. Well, there are no others, then <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll start. Well, to begin with, I, I like your paper very much. And generally, I do like uh, people who write uh, revisionist uh, history, uh, try to reread uh, things uh, critically and uh, not according to national narrative or other narratives. Yeah. Now, I don't know if we have to say reading or writing history backward or forward, I mean, we can only write history backward, yeah. we can't write it forward. So, <laughs> otherwise, otherwise we are futuralists, we are yes. not uh, historians. No, I know. As historians, we can't, but this way. Yes. But, what yes. you try to say actually is to read the period itself, and not the results yeah. later on to put them backward back to that period yes. and to the area. Yes. And in this way you are right. Now, yes. as I said, I, I mean, I, I agree with you actually, though this is not my specialty. I'm, I'm a, an Ottomanist historian, so I'm happy also that you give credit to the Ottomans yeah. uh, in our area because of the national narrative of history. 
they, they discredited the Ottomans so much that any time that I read something that they say that the Ottomans weren't not so bad and they are not the reason for our backwardness or whatever problems, crises and so on and so forth, it's just a re-reading re, re, and rewriting uh, the real history uh, of the period. Now, so, so I don't have discussion with the thesis, I, uh, though I have some minor uh, comments and then Thank questions. Um, uh, for the comments, I think I saw the one footnote where you put the name of Abu Isam, and you say Hanan Akara, an article from Al-Ittihad, the communist newspaper. Right. I just wanted to be sure that uh, you quote Sabrajiris, uh, or you think yes. that Isam, Abu Isam is Hanan Akara? Because to my knowledge, ah. Hanan Akara is Abu Tony, not, uh, ah. and not uh, Abu Isam. I don't know, thank you. Uh, so yeah. just check it to uh, be sure that uh, yeah, here it is. Uh, yeah, it's in, in uh, page 16. I, I yes. mean, unfortunately, the paper is not. Uh, pages are numbered. I know. Sorry about that. Pages are numbered, yes. but I, I made it, so it's page 16. Uh, so th this is one thing. And this is minor thing. What, uh, the number of the footnote. It's the number of the footnote is 66. Yeah. 66. Yeah, I'll check that. Just so, be sure. Yeah. I mean, unless this is a literal nickname.
knew that on time and fled. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are living. Those who stayed there, mm -hmm. they were exterminated. Anyway. But, so the, but had it not, had it therefore, I mean, again, counterfactual, we don't know. But arguably, had Hitler not come to power in 1933, mm -hmm. um, uh, Zionism simply would not have had the demographic weight behind it. Well, with the same thing we can say about 1881, yeah. uh, the, the Russian Kaiser didn't yep. start anti-Semitism and mm -hmm. uh, the, all the problems uh, of Jews in, in Russia. Zionism yes. will not start and the Jews will not come from Russia and East Europe yes. to, to Palestine and so yes. on and so forth. So if you take the different waves of uh, Jewish refugees or immigration mm -hmm. to Palestine, it's most of the time because they flee from problems and crises and not because Zionism is very attractive to them. Right. And other doors are closed, whether in the States or other places, and that's why they, have, they, they turn to Palestine and not to other places. That's they're forced. forced. Yeah, they are forced to, to come to Palestine, most of them, not all of them, not all, but most, most of them. Okay, so those were the Thank minor uh, uh -huh. comments that I have. Now, for the questions. Um, I mean, my question, I don't, maybe you wrote something about it in the paper and I just forgot it because I, I did now uh, write my question. The first one is, why the British didn't finish the job? Uh -huh. I mean, they started in 25, they worked for six or eight years until the 30s. Uh -huh. And why, why they didn't continue the job? I mean, arguably, but I, I, I said I agree with you, with your thesis. This is good for the Palestinians, that if they were finishing, and every Palestinian will know this is my land, this is not my land, this is Miri land, this is private land, this is Waqf land. Why they didn't continue the work in the yeah. 30s and 40s? So this is one question. The other one is, about a transfer of so-called state land, whether it's Jeff Lake or whether it's something else in, in the Bisan area or in other places, you didn't say, I mean, maybe you have it in your book, but I, I, I don't remember I read about it in, in the, the article. I mean, this is not your major uh, issue that you are dealing with there. If you can tell us a little bit more about transfer of so-called state land to the mm -hmm. Zionists, instead mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. you know, purchasing land from yeah. private people, concessions, uh, concessions. Uh, transfer of lands. Uh, it's not transfer, it's concessions. Concessions. Concessions, concessions. No, okay. In the, so in the end of the day, it's more or less the same. Mm -hmm. uh, and the third thing mm -hmm. is, I mean, once again, your paper is convincing that the British did in Palestine more or less what they knew to do from other places. And you compare with Algeria, and you compare with Canada. However, the, Alge the French were in Algeria already from the 19th century. Yeah. And the British also were in the Americas uh, <coughs> area. Yes. So the comparison should be in the same period, you know, the, the post-World War period. And then it makes difference. I mean, mm -hmm. if you compare something with something different mm -hmm. with, in terms of timing, yes. it makes big difference. Uh, so, apples and, yeah. uh, and, and then the question is, since the British, in addition to their 
experience from colonies, other colonies. In Palestine, there is something unique that the British, before occupying, finishing occupying the Palestine, have already gave the Balfour Declaration. So they have a commitment mm -hmm. to the Zionists that they want to make Palestine or or make Palestine a national home or establish a, pali a national home for the Jews in Palestine. Okay, whatever. Uh, and then, I mean, if you have such a commitment and you are a superpower and you are the, the ruler, then how do you help them? I mean, you told us what they did in terms of uh, parliament uh, and, and other things. They, they did a lot. Already in the 20s, they allowed the Jews to organize themselves in institution, autonomy, everything. And they didn't allow the Palestinians uh, to do the same. So in terms of land, how did they think they can help the, the Jews? It's not enough to bring uh, many immigrants to Palestine. So they opened the doors for Jewish immigrants uh, into Palestine, but in order, uh, you know, to have as much, I mean, as many as possible uh, Jewish immigrants, you need land to establish a col um, not colonies. We call it in Arabic uh, some kind of settlement. I mean, uh, settlements. Settlements, yeah, settlements uh, for the Jews. Uh, particularly for the Zionists, they didn't want most of the Jews to come to the cities. So in the end of the, in the, end of the they, they did go to the cities, but they wanted them to go to Kibitzim and to other agricultural uh, settlements. So you you do need land. Mm -hmm. So how how the British thought mm -hmm. they will help the Zionists if not? I mean, if not by this way, the, the yeah. cadastral of 1928, yeah. then yeah. by what other means? Okay, those are three great questions. I kind of want to jump to the third, but I'll forget the others. So the first question on the cadastral survey, and it doesn't finish, and they don't actually get very far, and that comes under a lot of criticism by other British officials, particularly um, when all these commissions start to come to Palestine, like the Peel Commission in 37, and then it's looked at again with the Anglo-American survey. Um, uh, it pretty much does come to an end in 36, in part because of the um, uh, Great Revolt, right? That uh, uh, not only, I mean, I, I think a lot of practices of the British administration come to a halt at that point from 36 to 39. And uh, that whole system of indirect rule and working through Palestinian political and economic structures, it falls apart by 1939. And then in World War II, you, they basically are running Palestine as a war economy. And Palestinian society is really struggling with the, with the damage inflicted on Palestinian leadership as a result of the, of the revolt and on village structures and economic structures. Um, up until 1936, the other problem is that the settlement officers who are going into the field to adjudicate these claims, and the whole legal and adjudication process, Munir's quite right here, it's through a British court system, not as it was done in an Ottoman system, and that has a huge impact on it all. But um, uh, what the British find is that it's very difficult to establish, what's very important is that that official establishes trust. With the, with the villagers in that whole adjudication system. Mm -hmm. that, um, he, that person can't go in and make stuff up, right? Um, as, uh, 
as uh, uh, Dowson says at one point, he says, for this register to work, for it to be the basis of credit, for it to be the basis of taxation, for it to, to, to end conflicts in the village, amongst villagers over who owns what, it has to reflect what the villagers you know, hold as the reality of land relations, right? So the, um, the officer, you can't make this stuff up and then have it any meaning. So the officers need to have very good relations. You can't take an administrative officer out of the land settlement process, put him into a uniform, put a gun in his hand, and then have him deal with you know these, these uh, and, and participate in military uh, responses to the revolt, and then still expect the British officer to then become a settlement officer and return to the field. So it really the 36 to 39 disrupts that whole settle system of settlement. And then the Second World War. And then the Second and World then, War. And uh, then the decolonization. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Still, however, you know, if you, and we were talking about this earlier, um, with the, some of these records were housed in the King David Hotel in the administrative headquarters there. And so when that's bombed, the, the, some, much of the work of the whole land commission and land office is then put to preserving best they can the records of the settlement process up to that point. Mm -hmm. And there's this whole program of photography, photo, photographing these records to try to, you know, they feel that they've, the settlement officers feel that they've achieved a lot. They feel that these, these, these records are literally worth their weight in gold, this piece of paper, right? So they want to do what they can to preserve them. But still, even that eight-year period of time, from 28 to 36, um, when people compared it to a similar eight-year period, Dowson tried to do this when he was called back in to reflect on it. Much more was achieved in uh, Jordan during eight years. Much more was achieved in Egypt during eight years. So there really was this accusation that it could have, more could have been done. And various reasons were given for this. There were bought, it was poorly coordinated by the British officials. Um, there were bottlenecks in the system that the, the, the registrars weren't keeping up with the adjudicators and the adjudicators weren't keeping up with the, with the um, uh, cadastral mappers. There were these bottlenecks that needed to be sorted out. When they came to Mushal land, it was, became very problematic in terms of trying to reduce these and, and, and transfer change, these lived realities of Musha into parcels. Um, even worse was Mafruz, where the villagers had already tried to do some partial privatization of the system. Um, and then you had all these claims to land because land was very valuable. And so there are more and more claims that had to be sorted out. So there are various reasons that are given as, as to why it was so slow, but it does sort of come to an end in 36. Okay, I can jump in. Yes, please. From your paper, you make a distinction between a judici judicial yes. uh, uh, survey or cadastral versus a uh, usufruct one. Yes, uh, that was interesting. For, for, for taxation, yeah. so it's much easier to do uh, a record that is concerned with tax revenue collection yes. than, than judicial one, which they choose to do in Palestine, not by chance, because of the Zionist condition. I think this yes. is, this is the, the, the critical point here that explains the policy, but I think oh, one, one, aspect, one aspect of that policy, with, uh, but their tax records uh, exist. I mean, I yeah. mean, they and and the UNCCP's work is based on that primarily. So, and it is a legal. Yes, it is. It's it's a valid proof of title to land. Once yep. 
a judicial process begins. Yes. In the court or in a settlement or any, in any place. And this is where the Israelis denied it. So right. in the Nakar. Right. So this is a, uh, clearly uh, a critical issue. So I wouldn't buy uh, the, the narrative that it wasn't finished in Palestine because okay. there was no land that it was not actually within the administrative structure of yes. uh, revenue collection. So and also uh, some some sort of legal privileges, clearly, and if not rights in the sense of the a title to the land. So this is this is this ought to be remembered. Yeah, that's right. To, I, that's excellent because in Egypt, uh, the great survey that Dowson inspired inspired Dowson. It was a fiscal survey. It wasn't a property rights one. You mentioned this. It really was just a fiscal survey. And so, and it was very straightforward uh, for them to do this. The fiscal survey, it, it divided lands up into different um, values. Um, and then uh, these different values, so I think they were 1 to 10 or something, were then, uh, then determined the pay scale of the taxation. Zero, they didn't pay anything. 10 was like the citrus groves outside of Jaffa or something. They paid, they paid more. Um, and the fiscal survey was done in the 1920s. And that was another reason for the delay up until 1920, because so many of the resources went to the fiscal survey as opposed to the, and they drew heavily on Musha at that point, because people, the whole system of, of dividing the land and then redividing the land, the, villager knew, the villagers knew exactly where the good land was and where the weaker land was. Where the, so it's straightforward to apply that fiscal survey to those lands. Um, Adelson has two questions. Do you want to answer them before we Yes, could you mind? So state land, this is really interesting. There, uh, under Ottoman law, there was no state land. It was, as you said, Maryland, right? Um, the British came and they saw Maryland and they, they thought, okay, great, state land. We have the rights to all of this. But of course, Mary, it doesn't say that. You know, people, if you, if you farm this land after so many after so long, you then get rights to it. If you don't farm this land, then you lose those rights, but somebody else is allowed to then farm the land. Mm -hmm. And there are these interesting concentric circles. The neighbor gets a certain right, or maybe soldiers returning from war. But what the Ottomans really wanted was to keep that land into and cultivate it. Because um, that, that's what they're interested in. They're interested in the harvest of the land more than perhaps the, the boundaries of a particular plot. So the British come in and they think this is all state land, great, we can do with what we want. And then they realize, well, you know, you can't. Right? And the reason they can't is because they can't impose a whole new system. They try. One example where they try is um, um, Athlete Kabar Caesarea, where a certain concession was made to. PICA, a Jewish organization, uh, for a concession, and it was viewed as a public health thing to drain mar to drain to sorry to drain swamps. Mm -hmm. So marshes get turned into swamps when it becomes a public health issue, and terminology matters here, right? Swamps are mosquito breeding, malaria breeding things, whereas marshes are buffalo and reeds and economies that develop from it. Um, but then they realize that actually the the herders of the buffalo have rights to do this, and there's an Ottoman record of this. And it goes in the legal system, and those, and nothing can be done about that concession right up until 1948. But then, then the whole process of clearing takes place in the war. Mm -hmm. Another example is um, uh, uh, these these village lands of um, towns called Sajad and Kazaza. I don't know quite where they are. I think they're sort of in the near uh, Lod and Ramla, Sajad and Kazaza. Mm -hmm. And what the British do there, so very similar to the Baysan lands. Right, which of this is Giplic land. Mm. But Giplic land, again, it's still Miri, isn't it? 
right? So it's still married. So, but the the government becomes a property holder. No, because just like it's not married. It's for the sultan himself. Yeah, so but but the sultan is a landowner. But it's still married the, land in the, the sense the, of the, the land settlement. <coughs> was intended to return the Jiftlik to Miri, Miri tenure okay. position. Possession but, on Miri land. But, but Jiftlik isn't, I don't think, a legal category in the Ottoman land no. system. In, no, it's a private property. It's more private property, it's almost private. more mulk maybe it's than Miri. It's private but, for what? But it's con confusing. So that so the British come in, and at first Mir Munir knows this better than I do, and they think this. And you know the uh, Weizmann and the Jewish uh, land purchase organizations say this is what we want under the terms of the mandate. But then the but the British go there, and there's they realize that they can't do this. And in fact, they trans they they don't sell. They transfer. Or there's different things, different terminology yeah. involved. Now, part of that would have been they, they, they do trans they do transform the, the they do metamorphose the, the yes. order, but not completely. So yeah, you're right that they they have to deal with the Ottoman order. They do, and they but, have but to they deal with the rights with of the people on the ground. They can yeah. yes, but they they do change lots of things. They do, they do. Right? That, yes, the, that's right. And and part of it might be to to get that land into yeah. the market. But at first, they want to they they like this idea of private property, and they and they give the rights to the landholders. That's the 1920s. After the riots of 1929, though, similar situation in these villages of Sajad and Kazaza, and at that point, they don't want to give, they don't want to give the villagers transferable rights. They give them inheritable rights, they give them every right other than transfer. Because at that point in the 1930s, the whole idea of a market and land isn't about improvement and economic growth. It's about the potential for people to lose their land by selling it. And the, and, and the riots scared the British because they worry about people. So they adopt a very patronizing approach to keep people on the land. So there's an interesting comparison in state land that happens between the 1920s and 1930s. So the very in, in the 1930s, they don't want to provide rights to Palestinians if possible, if they can prevent them, which they can in these jiftliks of these two villages called Sajad and Kazaza, because they're worried that if they get the rights that are, they give, that are transferable, right, they have every other right. They can will this, they pass it on, it's heritable, etc. They can't be dispossessed of the land, but they're not allowed to transfer it outside of their own ownership. They can't sell it. And the reason is because they realize now that um, there's just not enough land for Jewish immigrants without dispossessing Palestinian Arabs. And even though they do realize that there are these rights to, to support Zionism, the mandate also has, and it, it, it also, it also, it also obliges the British to, um, uh, that nothing can compromise the rights of the Palestinians. And they take this dual obligation. Well, that's in the Balfour Declaration, right? But the mandate has other rights involved. And, and I don't think this is so much an, a respect for Palestinian rights as it is a fear that if Palestinians lose their rights, they will rebel. And then that costs the British money and support to put down. So, and, the, and, and Zionism isn't happy about this. You know, they wanted more from Britain than they ever provided, than simply a market. And they... It's Jordan too, and they were not happy that... Yes, <laughs> yes, they say that. So, um, 
And the third point was the time period, and I think this is really important, that it's a, that settler colonialism of the kind that Zionism is about, it's too late in the day. You can't do this in the 1920s and 30s the way the French could in the 1830s and 40s, and the way the British could in Australia or Canada in the 16th and 17th century. And part of that has to do with the mandate also. You know, and it has to do with the Hague Convention of 1907. There are these international laws that are preventing colonial rule from... The, ma the mandate itself. In the mandate itself. From, you know, doing... I mean, it w Palestine wasn't a mandate. It was supposed to be brought into. The... Um, I think I think had it had the other side of this in terms of international law. So there were international laws. I think that at least for the British officials on the ground, were saying that we do have obligations to the Palestinian Arabs as well as to Zionism. I'm not I'm not trying to apologize for the British here, but I mean from the point of view of the officers on the ground, you know they they were they 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 were dealing with this kind of strange mistake that came out of World War One that was simply unsustainable. Right? And they realize this. They, they can, we can't do this. We cannot, you know, we cannot just impose a national home, whatever that means, right? Amidst the land of Palestinian Arabs who don't want to live in that Jewish national home. Um, but they couldn't really. The, the problem with getting away with it, that is to say, it was just another promise. Why didn't the British just turn to Zionism and say sorry? Or as they tried in '39, it's a bit late at that point. But say, well, all we did was promise a home. Right? We didn't promise a state, and you've got a home, a university, a, a, a hospital, the white paper of 39. Right? It's too late in the day in some ways for that, but, well, maybe not. I think in some ways the 1939 white paper is the sort of culmination of the mandate arc. That you compare the 39 white paper to the 36 draft treaty with Syria, or the 36 treaty with Egypt, or the 30-32 treaty with Iraq, and then World War II happens and changes everything again and throws the card. Then you have, then you have the Holocaust and you have the, 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 the decline of British power and the rise of the superpowers, all of which in the UN and in international law changes, the, changes the, 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 the relationships on the ground dramatically here. But um, that, uh, uh, that in the 1920s that um, uh, the British, oh, I, I know what I was going to say, that had it not been for the mandate, however, um, Britain probably would have, they probably would have broken the promise, the Balfour Declaration, but they couldn't. And the problem is that in, to do that, they had to go to Geneva, they had to go to the Permanent Mandates Commission and say, we have to change the mandate. And they didn't want to do that. And I think the best way to explain that is it's very difficult for historians to sort out, but it's a thing called pride and prestige. They didn't want to go to the Geneva, go to the Permanent Mandates Commission and say, we failed. They were also worried that a country like France might come along and say, ah, that's okay, we'll give it a try, and displace the British. So, so in a way, the mandate. But they did it in '39. They did it. They finally did it in 1939. But the reason they didn't do it sooner is, I think, because well, of because the. I, think, I, I, I mean, sorry that I'm arguing yeah. with you on this point, but I, I think they didn't do it in 28, 29, 30, because they weren't uh, sure that the Palestinian challenge or rebellion yeah. is a real one. While after 36, 39. And because yes. they were, they knew that they are on the eve of Second World War. This was different, yes. and that's why they thought we have to do it now, yeah. thirty-nine, but not in twenty-nine. I think you're right. Yes, they were, and probably in 1920s they actually. Pro I don't think they had a Jewish state in mind. 
don't think they knew what they were going right. for. Well, I don't know. But they, I don't know. There are several uh, words who, who say they did think about a state, but they couldn't put it on paper. Yeah, you, so that's the something you never put it on paper. is a Jewish state. Yeah. And not, uh, and it's not just uh, national home, no. university, architectural autonomy, yeah. or something like that. A national home, the British meant a state. The Zionists wanted them to put that clear. Yeah. But they said it's too complicated. Yeah, that's right. So, so this is a British way. But that, that's right. That's British way. The British way. Uh, yeah. of, uh, okay. Let's let's. Uh, I I suggest that we stick Sorry, to yeah, the uh, subject of the. Yes. Because this, yes, 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 no, this kind of discussion you have yes. to can yes. uh, So, uh, anyway, but, has, uh, I have one last comment on this. You know what we have to do is be careful to somehow suggest that land is separate from these other issues. And I think that's sure. what I do here. And I don't mean to, right? That we can. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is one of my, my, my questions. Yes. So, kind of, I guess, I'll give other people. Yes. Uh, anyone? Ala. Uh, ah, Nura. Nura. But, uh, it's not basically a question, but I just want to know that uh, your approach uh, to understand property and uh, land law in Palestine, or lands in Palestine, uh, was centralized uh, to the British practices in Palestine, yeah. but you didn't connect it to, um, to the Ottoman law itself and, why, yeah. and the Sultan practices and yeah. why the law was uh, really regulated. Yes. So that's <laughs> that's more to do that, yeah. yeah. No, I just, yeah. Uh, I don't know if uh, you talk about this, uh, but I'm, I want to know how did you get the percentage about uh, the four Oh, uh, yeah, about selling and buying land. The 7%? 6, 7, Six, percent. Six yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm interested to know how did you get to this. Uh, yeah. Well, this is common sense. And, uh, it, it's repeated and again. Everybody agrees that it's about 7%. Yeah. There's no discussion about this. Okay. Palestinians and Israelis and British and everybody agrees. What is not? I Okay. It's a good question, though. Where, I mean, it should have a source. I think probably there are several sources yeah. the design sources are not uh, invalid in this sense and they tell you we put this and that and some some of it is con are concessions from the government yes. yeah, basically yeah. what we don't know really is how many big landlords there were in Palestine how many land the notables and the, the older elite Benefited, how much they benefited yes. from the land code, and how much large estates were. Um, yes. Uh, what are the figures? Some people tell you, yeah. th those writing in the Marxist traditions, uh, they, they tell you, you know, there was feudalism in Palestine. There was a large amount of nonsense. Two million or something like that. I, I read a figure of two million uh, dunums held by 15 yeah. families or something like that, yeah. which is taken from Granovsky, from the Zionist uh, yeah. uh, narrative, which is yeah. actually a narrative that wants to tell that this is a land owned by feudal lords who exploit the peasantry, and we, we want to liberate the peasantry we from the feudal yeah, lords by expelling them from the land altogether. Right? Because, 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 because we don't the want to exploit their work. The so yes. so yes. that that is that's the lack in the literature, really. Yeah. We don't yeah. really know how what is the Ottoman reality in this sense, and even the British reality, I mean, yeah. and, you know. And because in the Palestinian collective memory, it's always that, it's the main reason why we lost our right. land, so this right. is the percentage. Yeah. <coughs> okay, do you want to I, yeah, I do. You see, I think that's why, um, 
Uh, now that and, and whether it's between seven percent, maybe ten percent, if you add some others, no, no, but six to seven, six to seven. That's the but, just, but but then then so if you, if you put this in the in the in the percentage of the fertile yes, land, that's what then I mean. you have more. You have yes. like thirty percent or twenty. Is, well, then you. <laughs> My calculation twenty five percent, but maybe maybe what what is twenty? Yes, that's uh, true. <laughs> planes, yeah. planes where big large uh, you know industrial uh, agriculture yeah. could could uh, could could be. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. you can't plant anything there almost. Uh, so, so in in that sense, they have more, much okay. more uh, yes. yeah. significance. Uh, and I know it's uh, the land you were referring to about the uh, it's called the Matruka land, around Matruka. Yeah. Matruka. 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 هاي <تصفيق> 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 So my understanding of Matruka is that this was sort of public land that people had, a, everybody had a right to, like the threshing floors and roads and things of that sort. And I don't think you can, you can't buy and sell Matruka land. Yes, yes, you're right. Mahlul, Mahlul, is the one that reverts. It's reverts. That's right. And that's interesting because somebody, for example. Uh, uh, the, the whole coastline, because my understanding is that um, the, the the sand, when it got hard, that was a, going to be a very good sort of highway up and down the coast. And so many argued that the, that the much of the sand and coastline would have been considered matruka. And that made it very difficult for private ownership to be made. But it's also interesting to think that even in villages, like in the Marjib and Amar, there would have been Matruka land or, or, or Waqf land, like the cemeteries and the mosques, that, you, that, that Jewish land purchasing org organizations could not legally acquire title to. Okay. Interesting. I mean, I, they uh, do, Martin, right? But yes. For the oh, benefit of, of, of discussion, yes. and you, you, you do, do you do uh, lecture? I know. Very, very well. <laughs> very well. Yeah. We, we, we began, we, we actually met for the first time at the yes. Brown Conference a few oh, weeks ago. And Martin, and then I knew Martin. Don't stop until I'm told. Okay, I, I will do something else now. I will collect questions and mm -hmm. remarks from several people, and then we will give you uh, 15 minutes or We'll see how it what goes. Okay? Mean, yeah. Okay? Yes. Uh, <laughs> 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 <la
يعني بعد يعني نحط لك اخر شيء سجل اسم المكتوب تسجيل اراضي As much as I agree with you on that we should not uh, take Zionism and put Zionism into uh, to explain everything that has been going on, I must disagree about land policies. Uh, maybe I will agree about the idea uh, brought in at the very beginning for land legislation, but land policies of the British mandate, uh, they were implemented in a way to facilitate uh, Zionist uh, colonial project. And I understand uh, Zionism as an integral part of the colonial project itself. It's not either uh, understand the British colonial uh, project uh, separately from Zionism or that they could go into conflict with each other. Okay. Uh, and I will uh, bring some something that you also argued. Uh, <laughs> when you uh, spoke of Dawson's Uh, proposals for land legislation and the ideas he brought for, uh, forward uh, for the British mandate to implement Palestine and bringing his experiences in, in Egypt. Uh, you argued in your paper that uh, officially the officials did not uh, in general implement his proposal uh, as brought in. Uh, they diverted from it, uh, they diverted from his ideas that uh, the land legislation uh, and empowering private or uh, to facilitate private uh, ownership of yeah. land was diverted from. And it was diverted from in a way that actually empowers a little bit more the state as opposed to the to his idea that uh, Basically, what you said and what I could not see in the paper is the uh, communal uh, uh, mm -hmm. owner or that community uh, right to the land as opposed to only the state yeah. versus the individual, which was maybe uh, still uh, present in Dawson's uh, proposal for land legislation, but in practice disappeared. Mm -hmm. uh, and here it comes uh, the idea that the state actually gained a lot of power a lot uh, to uh, control land than what was in the Ottoman uh, yes. and this is very important uh, for a colonial state and was evident uh, even uh, it was earlier argued that the facilitating for concessions to Zionist uh, companies or Zionist organizations uh, And it's hard to uh, under accept the idea that a state that uh, does all of those legislations that you mentioned as as very more uh, important than club legislation, and in practice uh, allow for stocking, uh, piling weapons in uh, Zionist uh, colonies, uh, empower them politically, have. Uh, Committees advising the the mandates uh, the yeah. mandate state, even when legislating, even when implementing legislations, even when writing the white paper in 1939, they had uh, consultations and they write about yeah. consulting 
the representatives of the Zionist colonial uh, project when writing the white paper, when meeting with all those 9, 10, 20, 90 uh, Anglo-American uh, uh, delegations uh, and presenting uh, different ideas for uh, division of Palestine, they do uh, uh, have consultations uh, and they do counsel uh, the Zionist organizations and Zionist leaders. They even allowed and officially uh, uh, accepted the presence of land registration, uh, land registers maintained separately and officially from the mandate by the Zionists. But this was not yeah. uh, in practice by, among the Palestinians and was not allowed. Yeah. They did, uh, when they, for example, they went into uh, set, uh, land settlement uh, in, in certain areas, they did write or, uh, or state the names that are present in local uh, Zionist uh, registers yeah. uh, of ownership and accepted that as an official, yeah. but not among the Palestinians. And also well, in practice about starting from the coast <coughs> and going up to the hills, that this was more logical. It definitely, maybe it had an, uh, a common sense that you start from the coast because it's a reference point, it's unchangeable, instead of the midland and so on. But the way they, they did implement the settlement project was not necessarily as uh, straightforward as you say that had nothing to do with Zionism and it's only a coincidence that mm -hmm. they did uh, do land settlement in areas where the Jewish had already purchased, yeah. even if it's minor, 6% or 10 or even 20, if it's minor, but actual land settlement was where the Jewish uh, colonies were. And an example to that, they uh, avoided uh, any land settlement within villages where they built on areas, and they left that, they did not even care about settling land in built-on areas. Yeah, this is rural, not urban, yes. Yeah, so and they, they did not set the land, why? Because it's, uh, though it could have been one of the easiest exercises in land yeah. settlement, because it's right, right uh, straightforward monk, everyone knows their boundaries, everyone knows their houses, it could have been just as simple as that. There, is no dis there are no disputes usually within the built-on areas, and why did they did not? Uh, go into that exercise and they avoided it and they went into rural lands maybe because they if you want to argue that they were going into uh, rural land for uh, that is to facilitate development uh, and all of these arguments but also yes there there was the land that could be uh, settled and then divided you empower the state and you weaken the community and you reduce it to individuals. Individuals are less uh, powerful, are vulnerable to uh, any economic changes, are more willing, and it's easier to sell land. Because I, it's, if I own a piece of land, it's easier, I can dispose of my ownership. Mm -hmm. if, if a thousand people own a piece of masha, yeah. you won't. It's not easy to find a thousand people who are willing to dispose of land yep. to the uh, Israelis or not the Israelis or Jewish uh, population. Mm -hmm. So I think, no, in the implementation it was not as... Uh, mm -hmm. as only a British, British colonial oriented uh, mm -hmm. project, it was also uh, to facilitate the Jewish yeah. uh, uh, colonization of Palestine. Yeah. Any other point? Uh, um, 
Um, I had uh, two, two questions. Um, um, I, I appreciate your comment about the, the perhaps some of the, um, the work that remains to be done, um, and if, as you suggest, that um, the, the notebooks are in existence of the land officers, yeah. the land officers' uh, notebooks, because I think this would be such a crucial point. Um, you know, from my perspective, I think that I would guess that that would help us to show that basically Palestinians were not only just kind of part of the picture, they were actually active participants, right. active agents of negotiating, renegotiating, um, subverting, um, posing all kinds of um, challenges, facilitating in other cases the, the land registration process itself. And in some sense, it really, to write them kind of out of the story is really kind of does a disservice. I mean, I, I just in the, the very small amount of work that I did about a demarcation of a nature reserve, um, it was just incredible to see even just from the notes of some of the, forester, the foresters saying basically that they got kicked out of the village and they had to move to camp because of some small dispute with someone else. And um, I saw this um, also in some work um, on Mexico um, where basically this, this, um, the, the scholar was basically saying that most of the work talking about the, the, the registration, the cadastral survey of Mexico simply writes out um, the kind of peasant um, interactions at the mic at these very small scales and he tried to do that kind of rewriting um, that using some of the notes and margins and I yeah. I would be very interested to hear more kind of where you think that work could yeah. influence this particular paper um, I know it's based on sources we don't have at, at hand yet but um, and the second thing I had was about the comparative um, settler colonialism um, yeah. Comparative settler colonialism is a is is in fashion, and I think it's a, it's, it's a very important it's a very important contribution now to see Palestine within a constellation of other settler colonies like Australia, Canada, the United States, South Africa, Algeria. Um, so I think that's been an important intervention. I think you're pushing us to kind of think more carefully about that, and maybe within the frame of reference of land. Registration, you're right in some sense that um, um, maybe the question is a question whether Palestine is a settler colony, as you posed it as a question, kind of as a subtitle. Um, but I think what ruptures and completely kind of changes that is 1948. Yeah. Because within the framework of land registration and the legal order, Perhaps it is a question, and perhaps the land registration posed a kind of obstacle to the machine of settling the land, and that certainly made it much more difficult in the 1920s and 30s than it did in the 18. You know, but then we have 1948. Mm -hmm. 1948 is a sheer, you know, with sheer force of arms, basically, mm -hmm. um, just wholesale dispossession, and I think there we have. Australia and Canada back in the picture again, right? I mean, we have total disregard for the legal order. Yeah, um, right. We have wholesale dispossession at, at the force of at the force of arms. So I think, yes, you know, I think it is. I think what 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 I think is really important here is that you're pushing us to think much more carefully about that, those moments, and how that how that works. So that's. Uh, we'll wait. <coughs> 
Because they can be taken together, I think, sure. quite interesting. So I'll start with the settler because I think that's really important. If we don't, if we don't draw uh, attention to the sort of nuances and differences of comparative settler colonialism, and I think um, I think those who use it are correct. You know, when Gershon Shafir, for example, talks about labor, or Zach Lockman talk about labor and use the settler colonialism theme, it's very important to do this, right? But if we just assume that it also applies to land and then compare Palestine to Algeria or to other situations, you know, if we're allowed to think comparatively across time, um, then what I think it does is it dilutes the significance of that model when one applies it after 1948, for example, or after 1967. Mm -hmm. So if we want to kind of consider if all of a sudden, well, Israel was doing what the British have already always done, then it dilutes, I think, the significance of what Israel did in 1948 and, were, and then did after 1967. Uh -huh. um, um, now, Britain might have come here and wished that they had a blank slate the way that Israel achieved it after 1948, right? Because after 1948, then they went from 7% of all of Palestine to, I don't know, the, but I think it, it, the, the Israeli state lays claim to something like 93 or 95% of Israel, right? Like that's incredible in terms of a set, you know, colonial con settler control. Yeah. Um, and they did that not through legal changes. Um, what I think is really important about uh, the British in the 1920s is is this question of they, they, whatever they wanted, they didn't really have the will and the capacity to impact that kind of, bring about that. At first they do. They think that they can come out, Dowson comes in and thinks, this Mary, this is all public domain, state land, this is great, we can do what we want, and then realizes that no, there are very real claims to the land on the ground that have to be dealt with. Now the way they see these claims, to bring these kind of questions together, I hope, is um, uh, they see the private property claims of the, of the individuals, of the landholders, as something that needs to be recognized and ought to be recognized, in part for taxation. This is the big thing for the British, right? They, these colonies need to pay for their own way, so they need to tax these places. What they'll call this to the hilt. You know, you want to tax, the, I think the general rule is you tax a population as much as you can without, without irritating it, because then it'll... Uh, uh, rebel or put, and that'll cost money. So there is a sense in which there's a sort of fair sense of, uh, of taxation and this, this is 10% rule that comes from the tithe under Ottoman rule. But to do this properly you need information and this is in part where the whole settlement process comes from is, is knowing who owns what and grows what so that they can have the information to tax it properly. That's in the government's interest but they also argue it's in the Palestinian holders interest and you know that's what the, the evidence suggests that Palestinian holders did this. The evidence suggests that they did it in Ottoman times. You know there are these stories that are very prevalent in the literature that says um, when the Ottoman land surveyors came around the, the, the um, notables said uh, to the to their cultivators in the villages, um, you don't want to you don't want to register your land. You know you'll just be taxed more, or you'll be conscripted. Put it into my name, and I'll protect you. Well, the evidence suggests that when people have actually looked at the process, for example, Martha Mundy in Jordan, or Eugene Rogan in Jordan, Michael Fishbach did this again in Jordan. Um, the Palestinian holders were more, or landholders were more than happy to register their land and pay the tax if, in return for paying that tax, as Munir suggested earlier, they had some government recognition that this was their land. Mm -hmm. 
and then they could do with it what they wanted. So this whole idea of <coughs> private ownership, if it's not necessarily private, because even communal property like village, it's not common property. The village had rights, so the village could exclude others. So there's still a sense in which they had rights that they wanted registered because in a sense they were protected. And if they paid taxes on it, that was sort of the price of ownership in that sense. Um, and then there are also, you know, I, there are, there were, whether they be traditional or communal or, or legal or even religious, um, ideas of what a landholder can do with his or her, or her, because there are many female owners and uh, uh, people who were deeded the land or inherited the land, right? Who could do with what they want. And there is protest against the British when there is any fear that the British were going to come in and stop them from doing this. So in the 1920s, for example, in 1920-21 with the Land Transfer Ordinance, there is a feeling that Britain was not opening the registers because they wanted to keep the economy in a standstill. If you don't have rights to your land, the secure rights, then you can't go get credit from the bank. Or you can't sell your land, or you can't sell a portion of your land and then invest that money in, in, in plant citrus or something of that sort. So. I think what the British were struggling with is um, it was really a Rubicon that they did not want to cross. They did not want to go and impose upon Palestinian landholders um, any restrictions on market relations. And these market relations went past, down past centuries in terms of who went, owned what and what you could do with it. So, um, in terms of bringing the two stories together, you asked about this whole kind of moment of settlement and the agency of the Palestinians, right? Um, and you asked about, you know, really, weren't the British really interested in sort of imposing market forces on the Palestinians so that they could get it into? I think that's what happened, and it did help. The, it did help uh, Zionist land purchases in, in the uh, in the coastal plains. But I don't think that was the intention. I think that the intention was to uh, secure indi individual title to the land. I think that's what the British wanted, but I think that's also the, if we can judge from the participation of the landholders in this process, what the landholders wanted as well. Why they do this in a very comprehensive way is because until that point, any conflicts in land, and there are always gonna be conflicts in land, right? In terms of where one border ends and where another begins. There's always going to be these conflicts. They were how they were all um, looked after by the land courts, and the system of land courts that the British imposes in the 1920s sort of it's more of a British invention than it is an Ottoman legacy. But these land courts were dealing with land conflicts in a very haphazard way, and they didn't have access to their own. They they would hire their own surveyors, and the surveyors would go out and do things. And then as soon as two people's land met, you had overlapping claims again. So it just created more conflict. So they wanted to stop doing this in a haphazard way and do it in a more comprehensive way. That they did this in the plains and that Jewish land purchases also existed in the plains, I think represents more of a correlation, I do, uh, a coincidence, than it does an actual intention. Because you just don't see it in the books. You, 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 if you look at Dowson, you know, he talks about Jewish, he talks about colonies other colonies, and he includes the German colonies in with the, Ger Ger uh, the Jewish colonies, but in his reports, and he writes lots of reports in the 1920s, it's like paragraph 72 in a 120 paragraph. And he wants those, you're right about the land records, he wants those, he likes them, he thinks this is great that they have these records, bring them into the system. But he doesn't actually see it, he, 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 he sees uh, these Jewish colonies as 
He sees the Jewish colonies as a footnote to the larger question of land settlement, whereas most literature sees land settlement as a footnote to Zionism. Yeah, you also argue that in practice, in implementation, the bureaucratic implementation of land, yeah. uh, not the legislation itself, the in the instance, yeah. okay, the registration, land registration process and land settlement process did divert from this whole idea. They did move into certain areas. They did in a and avoided certain areas. No, I don't think I do argue that. I don't mean to, because if you take He's a look at, that. oh, you're arguing that. No, I don't, because because and they, he was also critical. They, they say, say like, that they don't. They they actually make a point of saying we can't do that. Now they do. They did it in one place, I think, where the British military built an airport, and they wanted to find out well who did they you know expropriate land from. But in very rare cases, do they ever divert from that comprehensive system? Yeah. Okay. So, um, but I had one last question here. Sorry, because the question of of, of agency is is important. But keep in mind Munir's point at the beginning, which I didn't, which is a real I think gap in the paper, and that is this all happens within a British legal system. Right. So yes, we can uh, we can suggest that there's dialogue and that there's that there's communication and relationships being formed, but they do have to play by a, a system of rules, which is also being determined now by a, a British. It's a British official who's doing this. But isn't that now, rule pr produced in the in the interaction, or is it just simply imported from London? Yeah, so there is into that, and, and this is, I think, what's really important is that even though he does represent a British officer, and you have to now listen to the because the settlement officer is given legal title, he he just wants to settle the land. So he's actually quite weak in this situation and can be taken advantage of by landholders. Mm -hmm. He just wants to make sure that this gets settled so he can move on. So what I think also can happen though is manipulation of the process by a large landholder or weaker. The, you know, you do have the village settlement committee that comes together in case that there's a, a minor who has rights or in case somebody's absent and they're supposed to look after this or the matrucal yeah. land and these sorts of areas. But you know, what, when communities come together, they're going to be some powerful and some weaker and so that situation can all be taken advantage of. But you have some British officers who get very frustrated by the fact that settlement officers are not, if they can find Mahlul land or if they can find Mawat land, um, that it's not being registered in the state's name because everything's getting registered in the names of the landholders because they're, 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 they, they have a much more initiative in this regard than um, the settlement officers. So it comes back to the previous question, and here I will wrap up, is if the British didn't do this, that would have been the more massive intervention than doing it. See what I mean? If the, if the British said, no, we're not going to settle title here. We're going to stop you from owning land. We're going to stop you from owning land because we don't want you to have market rights because you might sell it. That would be seen. I, I don't know how the, I think that, the, that the Palestinian landholders would have rebelled against that. And, and, if you, and if you think about what happened in Jordan, um, it was quite successful. Because people want secure title to land because that's what you can take to the bank. People want to know if they own the land because you're not going to invest in it if you don't know if you own it in three years or five years or ten years. Yeah, but you have you have, you you have, the, Ottoman, you have the Ottoman laws yeah. and you have the uh, practice under the Ottoman uh, rule. And you have it changing, uh, going still and changing and so on. So people were used to that. It's not they were in a, in a uh, legislative vacuum or 
uh, I know, had that, no practices of selling but, and abandoning. But that didn't stop Jewish land purchasing agencies from purchasing either, did it? I'm not, like saying, it's, it's, I'm, I'm not saying the legislation it, oh, it was, uh, I'm not saying that the argument is that land legislation and land registration facilitated easier and more uh, land purchases by Jews from individual Palestinian landholders. Okay. And I think it empowered the state to dispose of state land Okay. and associated okay. the state land this is, identity this is. from the people's identity and the community. The state became something abstract, something not yes. related to the people who are living on the land. Yeah. It's the same as yeah, the state did not consult with the population to have its own legislation or constitution, yes, that, so they ignored right. the population, yeah. had no relation to the state, sure. and now the state owns the land. Sure. Uh, this, this ownership? I'm not this, might be, this might need research. In, 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 you have to prove it in, in, in giving mm -hmm. cases, otherwise it, it, it remains a theoretical mm -hmm. argument. But and that takes us back to the land records. But, 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 but is there, there are many, many questions that, that yes. can be generated from this. I, I'll pose some, but uh, in order, Samia. I want to ask about the war <coughs> and the dispute between the Palestinians and the Jews around the war areas. Because as far as I know, uh, large areas of Palestine were waqf. How did the British officers uh, deal, uh, deal with the registration of the waqf? What documents they requested? Because the Mufti of Jerusalem, you know, yes. he sent a delegate to Istanbul to get the yeah. documents of the waqf to prove for the, these officers. That was a big issue, I don't know if you... Yes, look, I don't know much about it. It might come back to the previous concern, too, around urban property, that this really does focus on rural land. My understanding was that Waqf land was very valuable here, but that it tended to be more urban than rural. I don't no. know of... No, no. I don't know of large... There are, there are some... Many, all, all, villages, all villages, all villages, all villages, tens of villages, churches, churches. Mm -hmm. And, and church land. Okay. This is very, uh, very, very agricultural, rural yeah, land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even that, like even like Latunia, Latunia, which is also I was yeah. a case and like the story after yeah. 67. And you need to, uh, yeah. you need to, uh, when it's, uh, to research the uh, the Supreme Muslim Council's records because if they have any title to the to land from the settlements, it will be there. Hmm. So instead of going to the settlements uh, records. Yes. So once uh, our friends uh, open the, uh, the archives in they allow us to, <laughs> it's open to someone. <laughs> so I think you could, you could have Mary Walk and Mok Walk. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure if the settlements, uh, the settlement <coughs> did uh, record what land. But you, but you weren't allowed, well, I probably not, because you weren't allowed well, to, many areas, to sell walks. There have been many disputes. So. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah, it's something good. It's my, uh, my turn, and this Carol wants to... Uh, Carol, Fee. Carol? Mm. Yes. Uh, were there any no man's land then? Any insight on no man's land, or this is yeah. a later invention? Um, uh, no man's land, no man's land. Like Mawat, in that sense, dead land. 
No, like. Does that uh, that thing like that? The knuckle. No, knuckle. Yeah. The knuckle. Yeah. The what, what, what I know here as a nomad used to be a nomad's land mm -hmm. is around the uh, between the forty-eight and sixty-seven. Oh, oh, I see. Ah, okay. That's the border. Similar similar similar. No. That was war-related ceasefire uh, yeah. agreement so and declared the no man's land. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no. Were there any incidents of the sort or uh, similar no. similar kinds of? It's an interesting question because when um, when um, when the British and the French divide, for example, Palestine from Lebanon. And that's all of a sudden the Sursocs become absentee landowners, right? All of a sudden they find themselves across an international boundary, making it more likely that they would sell. I mean, and all of this is involved in these well, land questions. Um, they, uh, the British and the French, they sort of do a, par a walking party through the borders drawn on a map before it's demarcated on the land. And that takes a few years, but I don't think there's any real dispute between the two over where the borders go. And not even the demarcation with Egypt, I think. No, then the demarcation for me. Maybe there is one section in, in the Sinai. The demarcation with Egypt was during the Ottoman period. It was, it was yeah. 1905. But maybe there is a sort of a sand, a yeah. desert area. No, I mean, it's also like Syria with, and the Yeah, with the Syria and, and yes. Lebanon. They went back and there were certain lands belonging to certain villages and they were uh, crossed and then they were back demarcated again. And yeah. Like there were changes when demarcation was yes. on the ground with the British officers and the French officers. And the French, yes, there were some things. I think the, um, uh, the Bedouin property was seen almost outside of this, and, and they did have traditional customary rights that were recognized by the British. Now, whether or not, you know, in some ways, this, the, the, the British, because they were sort of ad hoc and haphazard about all of this, um, they leave, a, they leave a, a, a legal trail that's not necessarily implemented, but that is available then to Israel to impose in different ways. So even though they might have recognized customary, I don't know, or, uh, sorry, no, um, even though there were, they recognized customary rights to and traditional rights of Bedouin communities, um, they weren't legalized in the way that the land settlement ordinance legalized other property rights, and so it's the it's often the the uh, British and the Ottoman land law, laws that Israel will turn to today to dispossess Bedouins from their from their land holdings. But the British aren't they, you know they they often seem to be weaker than we give them credit for in terms mm -hmm. of implementation. Yeah, but actually her question wasn't about the... No, the, no, no, I know. Man's, the, the no man's love. I know, yeah, I just yeah, thought... Yeah, I understand, no, but the the 448, I don't think there, there was something like that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, now it's my turn, <laughs> if you allow me, uh, Martin. Do you, do you still have energy? For I do, this is, thank you very much for this. 15 minutes. <laughs> uh, okay, I... I mean, there's, uh, it's more co comments and some questions, but basically comments, and even the, the questions are comments. Uh, for instance, uh, when you say the Sursuks, um, uh, the, 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 the Zionists benefited from ambiguity in yeah. land records, and the, uh, and the big example of the, uh, the Sursuk, I know that there has been written about this from a recent perspective, from some, some, some lawyer, from Nazareth, or I forgot his name. He wrote about his, the, the, his from one of the villages around okay. Nazareth, 
that he told this story that this is actually, uh, you know, uh, land that wasn't re recorded part of the source of uh, states was was sold. I saw this in newspapers, but do you have any actual any kind of yeah. you know uh, government records of this? <laughs> and why? I mean, there's also a question yeah. of the 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 Torrens system that, yes. that was uh, that the British were. Dawson was saying we were implementing this, uh, and so it's very useful to bring the, that that part uh, again. So there's a mixture yes. of colonial settler, settler colonialism yes. and a mandate condition, and this brings me to the, the major kind of issue that is frustrating here: is the paradox of, of this mandate rule. On the one hand, it is it extends civil rights, property rights to all, supposedly, and by Extending is, is, a, is a verb that we must take cautiously because extending is, is a process of transformation of the older, of the existing you know social landscape with its legal Ottoman legal uh, practices and all the complexities, social struggles, social relations, transforming it into something uh, something else, a new code of, of rights which is itself never complete and is and continues to be fluid and contested and, and so forth. So extending civil rights is, or recognizing civil rights for the Palestinians is itself a, a, a huge topic to investigate. What does it mean to make a new order, to transfer, uh, transform uh, something into something else? Um, one can see this as a, object, a different kinds of forms of objectification of land. Yeah. Uh, it's not uh, to, to avoid the, the category of private property versus something else, as, as if it's complete uh, opposite of it. Um, okay, so there's the, many of these questions, but the paradox, the paradox of person, how do you recognize okay, civil rights to all and then still allow a colonial condition, colonial settler condition? Mm -hmm. You allow the transformation of property into territory. Yeah. into something that, you know, there's potential uh, implicit, tacit, but we all wink and we understand this, that this is a Jewish state or pseudo-Jewish state or in the making, but it's not legally. So this condition, this ambiguity, this paradox is, is fundamental to understand uh, British rule. It, it's not something that, it's, it's actually, we have to start with it. Now, what your lenses, your analysis into three uh, frames of reference, yes. it seems to me that you do the first step of, or half of the first step, of analyzing mm -hmm. what are the lenses, but then the different you know, lenses, really, that you have to look at, but then you don't bring them together right. to see the, the picture. Right. So it, it remains frustrating in a, in a, in a sense. You don't. You, you, yeah. Is it Zionism? Is it not? Is it this? Is it not? It's That's all. Right. It's all of these things yeah. together. So what does? How do yeah. you? How do you bring them together? And you bring other friends of reference. It's the people's own uh, understanding, the national project. You know, there's there's m m many different things. Then the question becomes uh, more a study, concrete studies of of, of space. Can specialized rather than uh, uh, rather than simply analytical for, but because this analysis brings you back to a, a dichotomy that science studies has warned us against, which is the dichotomy of the human and the non-human. <laughs> and this dichotomy, you come from a theory from the traditional. Uh, you know, school of, of, of political theory, basically, mm -hmm. that that uh, believes that 
the human in modernity is getting mastery, achieves mastery over the non-human. This right. is this is the story here. Yes, and this pushes yes. you immediately to something called policy, but which immediately falls into something called intention. So your debate with Allah is yeah. about intentions. What are the intentions what of the, the British? And then the British of the, the, the intentions of the British become the, become the intention of Dawson himself. So you, you really go to with the single human here. Yeah. And this is very frustrating. Science, science studies allow us to uh, look at these technolog technological technology uh, projects. Uh, 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 through, not through this dichotomy, but through uh, a hybrid of, of things as they flow. How the human and the non-human come together yeah. to yeah. make it. So it's not yeah. about intention. Because if you want to understand what property does, does, mm -hmm. not means, does, then you have to look at, at it at, at, at the ground. If you want to understand yeah. what the settlement does, you mm -hmm. need to take case by case, to take case studies or, yeah. or uh, uh, some, some kind of other approach to understand what, what, how did it impact Palestinian yeah. society. Uh, to, to assume that it is good or bad for the Palestinians to register land is a, an a priori question. It, right. it prevents you from, uh, from in, really getting at what it did and what it meant on the ground, meaning is it's not an easy thing to perceive. Um, uh, so, but having said all this, I really uh, think that your point on 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 not uh, uh, reading Palestinian history through the Zionist lens uh, uh, is is very important, very useful. I I, I found it very useful in, in my work. And uh, I was very happy to see that you've written about it to quote, to quote you on this. <clears throat> but this is not the only, I think there's <clears throat> kind of a limit to this. Yeah. Unless you, uh, uh, you know, do something about these lenses, more <clears throat> frame, f uh, frames of reference, yeah. more than simply analyzing the, the different lenses. Right. Bring them together, I don't know, it's <coughs> just to overcome the impression that it's right. either or, or which is more important. Right. Because in, in Tel Aviv, Biafo, maybe that was more important, but in, 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 in Bisan, the other one was more right. important. So maybe in different villages, bordering each other, each one had different yeah. important lens working yes. or framework uh, working. Uh, so so this is this is the challenge but you know I'm very happy that you're writing in this direction and exploring these issues. So thank you very much for that. So you have now ten minutes okay. to wrap it up. So because um, I think you're right that, that the big you know, fudge in this paper is I'm just suggesting that these are three frames of reference. I then I don't then go and weigh them. Yeah. I don't conclude that, right? And uh, although um, I, I can, maybe I could be more specific about it, about about that. But then it would be, it would be about um, intentions behind the policy of this one piece of legislation, which, when we think about property, is only one. I mean, Mundy and Smith have this wonderful way of looking at property as. You know, the, uh, it happens at the point of articulation of three moments. One is this, the question of legislation. But then another is the implementation of that legislation. And then the other is what's then a, what's, what, how, how that's understood by the owners themselves. Because that could be yet another transformation mm -hmm. that brings the end result completely different from what the intention was, right? So, and I'm only looking at this one. 
but then we get into a bit of another paradox. It's a very good word here because if, if we need to weigh these, I think the only way to weigh these frames of reference is by a case study approach. We have to kind of see how this plays out at different places at different times, both in terms of geography and time period, and in terms of the articulation of property as it's defined at these various moments. And, and, and so that becomes a bit self-fulfilling because if we then say, well, I'm only going to do this policy moment, then, well, where does that leave us? Well, it's only a very small part of the whole picture. But um, uh, what would be wonderful if, and because I'm not going to do this, right? Like, there's so much to be done here. But what struck me in the 1990s is nobody was doing this. Everybody was just coming in talking about Zionism and talking about, you know, um, um, Norman Bentwich. And, you know, he had the ear of Herbert Samuel. And so, therefore, ergo, everything that was done about land was had something to do with Jewish land purchases. And there was a certain, come back to the question of narratives, which I think really interesting, is that almost everybody... Everybody, right? if we if we reduce this to three people, right? There's a Zionist and a Palestinian nationalist and a British officer. But to a certain to, to the extent that there are national narratives that can be reduced to this, it seemed everybody kind of had a vested interest in this, right? Um, the Zionist narrative could come along and say, um, "What do you mean? We bought it all." You know, we bought our state, and you know, and besides, what does that say about Palestinian landholders that they sold their patrimony? I mean, I mean, the whole idea in political science that you can actually buy a state, right? Or that, 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 that the buying and selling is anything more than an economic... People in Vancouver sell land to Hong Kong purchasers all the time, right? There's no accusation of, oh my God, what are you doing? You're selling your patrimony. So, um, the British say that, the, yeah, of course we came along and we invented, we invented private property and we imposed it and this is all about the civilizing discourse because, um, you know, Musha is backward and private property is progress and this is what we do and this is why we did it. Now, it's really important to, to understand the extent to which British colonial officers, they invested so much energy in just defending and justifying what colonialism was about. Never mind what it did. They just wanted to constantly just, they were always kind of on guard there. And, and the Palestinian narrative was we, you know, to some extent too, that um, the British came in and took private, common property and divided it all up and let, the, and let the Jews purchase it. So there's a certain extent to which... Sorry, but the Ottomans did that before the British. Yes, and the Ottomans were doing it too, right? Yeah. And they didn't give birth of declaration to the Jews, but they, they did it. It was they, happening. Yeah. In Marjib al and other yes. places, and that's how Sursuk and Twaini and that's all right. the Libanese and Syrian yeah. uh, families bought yeah. those lands uh, and then sold them to, to the Zionists. And, and I, the reason I think that this is sort of thinking about it backwards is that had it, we don't counterfactual, but had it not been for, say, Hitler's rise to power, had it not been for World War II, so these are developments after 1933, all of a sudden, I think, we'd be writing the history of the 1920s very differently. And, and it would be more similar to Jordan, where Britain, did, where Britain did something pretty much identical in Jordan, and the story's a success story. Uh, Michael Fishbach talks about going into the Jordanian land offices, and there are photos of the British land settlement, you know, officers. These are... I would, I would be cautious I know, about this. I agree. This story is I, no, no, sorry. Okay, and this is where I want to end, because, because um, uh, how do you define success? And, and this is, and I, I wish I'd spelled this out better, Who is does? because when we think Who about, um, but yeah, the success of private property, right, or state, reg, state, power, state regulation, is uh, when I talk, when I want to talk about, you know, the, the grander narratives, 
and, and, and explaining this in terms of grander narratives, what we really have to do is take these taxonomies of private property and state regulation, which the British and elsewhere in the world thought was the only definition of property, and, and really problematize those simplistic taxonomies. Because as this literature around common property today talks about, I'm thinking of Eleanor Ostrom and governing people, she's a, she's a Nobel Prize winner a few years ago. And Eleanor Ostrom, O-S-T-R-O-M. And what they're doing is they're trying to, to, to look back at common property arrangements as being very successful property arrangements, both for social networks, but also especially for the environment. And that's the other thing that these simplistic taxonomies about state or private owner do, is they disregard the environment. They completely disregard ecosystems. You cannot take a, a watershed and divide it into rectangles. Do you know what I mean? And, and so, and so a, a, a lot of it is driven from environmental concerns, but a lot of it is driven also from social justice concerns of local indigenous, indigenous communities who were hurt the most from this um, bifurcation of what well, property either has to be state or private now. But that means subjecting Palestine to the same sort of scrutiny that these, that these um, this common property literature, which looks at different ways for the resources to be managed by the adjacent community, arguing that that's how you run a sustainable fisheries, or that's how you run a sustainable forestry, or that's how you run a sustainable, you know, creek and watershed in the salmon in it. it it's all related. Was brought very, uh, you know, fundamentally by the Fayyad government to, to Palestine recently. Yeah. It's all about development, private property, right? privatization. It's all against and and it is still today with the conservative government in Canada and the Republicans in um, in the United States. It's a very right wing yeah. neoliberal agenda. Yeah, and that that needs to be problematized. But but even to open Palestine up to that sort of problematization, I think is a huge step on from the 1990s. Oh sure. And so then we take a look at something like Musha and we understand it in line with common property arrangements elsewhere in the world, Icelandic fisheries, Japanese uh, uh, shellfish industries, and yeah, there's, a, and there's a whole literature on this, yeah, as opposed to seeing it as something backward, the British come in and, and uh, divide it all up to get into the market. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank well, you thank, and thank you very much for all of your... And, uh,